Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning. Before I start, there's two or three things I want, <clears throat> excuse me, want to do. One is on Memorial Day, my mind goes to places that I couldn't even explain. I was named after my uncle. His name was Walter Scott Rawlings. He <clears throat> drafted in the Second World War. He was with General Patton in North Africa for 16 months, then went back to England. And then when they invaded Italy, he was wounded on Anzio. <clears throat> Had five holes in him that was put there by a German machine gun. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know what was in that bottle that I drank, but... My other uncle, that was in Second World War, was my mother's brother. He was in the Navy and in the Pacific. When Dave Literal and I were in New Guinea, we stayed a night or two at a place called Weewack. And I was explaining that to my uncle, and he said, I was stationed there for a while after we took it from the Japanese. Both of my brothers were professional soldiers. I was reading Gene's, the oldest brother's, biography last night. He came out of the service as a bird colonel. He was in Korea for a while and did two things in Vietnam. Chuck, the middle brother, he was the beer drinker and the woman chaser. He was good at both. He <clears throat> is buried in Germany. Mo and at a in the little town where his wife and children, his two boys now live. I have difficulty at this time in my life <clears throat> talking about those things without getting kind of choked up. I hope you understand. But on this particular day, because people my age, most of whom are my age or close, are hardcore patriots. We happen to believe that this country is probably the best place to live in the history of mankind since the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and, and when you see it being mishandled, you kind of get bent out of shape. If you live here, you should thank God every day for the privilege of being free. Next to your salvation... I doubt if there's anything more important than your freedom. Cherish it, defend it, and thank God for it. The concept of freedom actually comes from the scripture. It clearly says that those who are free in Christ are free indeed, using the King James term that I grew up with. And so the Jewish people have always been the leaders of all mankind in seeking to be free. They were under somebody's yoke most of their history. And that concept came here. 
and it's a wonderful thing. Alice Kay and I had a visitor from Bethlehem, Mary Mosula. Her, she spent a few days with us here. Alice Kay took her up to Ashland, and they went shopping. Mary is the, her husband was a psychiatrist, a doctor, so she was, had some means, and so she was shopping, and I was upstairs when they got back, and she was dancing around the car. Now, here's a 60-year-old woman dancing around the car. She said, so this is what freedom is like. If you've never been in bondage, you really don't understand what you have. You have something very special. Now, the second thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, what the kids are doing back in grades 4, 5, and 6. They're learning the fundamentals of, about the Bible. And I think it's important that you all at least have a handle on what they're doing so if they talk to you, you kind of be prepared. My mother was a hardcore teacher, and she taught us the fundamentals of the Bible, and she did it with her hands. You see, if you, if you can tie things to something that you can remember, you can, I do that with names all the time. Peggy Rowland has all been, always been pretty, pretty perky, pecky, pole, pole, whatever it is I call her. I do people that way simply because it helps me remember their name. And when you get my age, your memory better have some help. And so, if you, you, and you feel free now to go along with me because I'm going to go through this one time and then we'll go to our text, which is the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, the first 16 verses. So if you just take one hand, you can do it this way. Okay, what are the first five books of the Bible? Say them with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are five major prophets in the Old Testament. Feel free to say them with me. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. The first five books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. There are five books that the apostle uh, John wrote. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. There are five books in the Bible that have only one chapter. One in the Old Testament, four in the New Obadiah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's Philemon. And, that's, and we're going to be preaching from that in a few weeks, I, Matthew says. So you have Philemon, 2nd and, and, and 3rd John, and Jude. It just helps you, and that's, that'll hold you for a while. But all of you need to be able to do that yourself. And so periodically, I'm going to go through that again with you. Because a lot of you have never been exposed to... At that sim and your kids are going to come home and, and uh, grandkids and so on and so forth because they're going to be learning that in their class, that kind of stuff about the, about the Bible. Uh, and so uh, it's awful when a, a fourth grader knows more than Grandpa does, so you better get with it. Okay, the fourth chapter of Ephesians. The book of, Ephes the book of Ephesians is about the city of Ephesus, which was uh, a major city in the Roman Empire. 
there are several books in the Bible that are about that city and the, and the church there. Now, don't get the idea when you see it, when it talks about the church at Ephesus, don't get the idea that it's one big congregation. They had no church buildings. They met in people's homes. They had no means of public transportation. They had to walk or ride a donkey or wherever they are, horse, wherever they went. And so there were house churches all over this big city of several hundred thousand. And so uh, we know there were at least uh, several because when you get in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is going to Jerusalem for the last time. And he meets there on the seashore with the elders from the church at Ephesus. These elders were the overseers. Uh, the Apostle Paul referred to them as the overseers of those house churches throughout the city. Second, first and Second Timothy are about the church at Ephesus because Paul, who spent more time in Ephesus probably than any other place in his evangelistic efforts in establishing the church, he was there for three years, actually run out of town once, uh, at the threat of his life, he was being he was so successful in introducing that city to Jesus that many of the worshipers of the goddess Diana, which was the or sometimes called Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that the union that belonged there that made the the silver images of the goddess Diana. He thought they were going to get put out of business if people weren't going to buy those little idols anymore. And so they literally chased him out of town. He didn't stay out long. but uh, and, second, and so when he knew that he was going back to Jerusalem and, and would never see them again, actually says, I'll never see you again there in the 20th chapter of Acts. He, he left Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus, even though he was a young man. And so when you read First and Second Timothy, it is about his, mostly about his sojourn and ultimately the overseer and the replacement of the apostle. Now, <clears throat> what the apostle Paul is doing in this sixth, well, through the book of Ephesians, is he's using different illustrations to show how it's possible for Christians who have drastic differences to get along with each other and just have the church instead of the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Episcopal church, the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, the Christian church. All of these things are an embarrassment to God. There should only be a sign if you're going to have a sign that says the church. And it's important that we understand as Christians, we're not the only Christians, but we are Christians and we don't want to be anything else but Christians. We don't want to be Calvinist Christians. We don't want to be anything else. Just because we can only be one if we get rid of all of the things that divide us. And those names actually divide us. And Paul talks to the Corinthians because they've always struggled, uh, always struggled. And he asked the question, is Christ divided? Because they were following names of, 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 of the apostles. 
Peter baptized some, Paul, and Paul finally says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any except a couple that he mentioned. Because is Christ divided? We're not to be followers of men. We're to be followers of our king, the head of the kingdom of God, Jesus himself. And keep it that simple. And so what he's doing here is he's giving us the guidelines of how it's possible to be one in Christ and come from different backgrounds, have different opinions. Da, 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 da. But in Christ, we become one because he isn't divided. And so that concept needs to be in your head as we read this. And he's going to say, okay, in the flesh, it can't be done. But in the spirit, it can be accomplished. In the flesh, if the natural man that we inherit because of what happened in the Garden of Eden is divisive by nature. But in Christ, there's no division at all. Or there shouldn't be, but there is. And it's an embarrassment to God. And we'll see how that, why that's true before we're done. Now, let's start reading. Paul is writing from prison. This is called one of the prison epistles when we're studying the Bible in college. He said, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, whenever it, the Bible talks about, the New Testament talks about the calling, in almost every instance except maybe one or two exceptions it only refers to when you became a christian it's called the calling you were called out of the world into christ and the name of the church in the greek language actually testifies to that it is the we call it we talk about the ecclesiastical business which is the religious thing of the church it's two greek words put together ek meaning out Kaleo meaning called, meaning so we were called out of the world into Christ. And the word ecclesiastical is, means that. You're out of the world into Christ. You're, being, you're getting away from the natural desires of the flesh to the will of God. And there's always tension there that struggles within each one of us. Because the world we live in is essentially dominated by the devil. The result of that is, and he's actually referred to in Scripture as the prince of this world. The result of that is that we have nations fighting nations, neighbors fighting neighbors, classes of people fighting other classes of people. We have that, that disharmony and disunity everywhere. And there are people political people in particular, who actually stimulate it because they benefit from division. But in God's kingdom, we benefit from unity, being one in Christ, loving the people that we don't even like, and that's possible. So he, let's keep on. He says, now he's getting ready to give us a few of the character qualities that are essential in people, if we're going to have unity. 
These are character qualities that he's going, some of which are mentioned in the book of Galatians as, as the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's primary job is to create in the save, to come in to save people's lives and produce in us the character qualities of Jesus. That's what a godly person is. When, we, when you can see, and when the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ he, and to die is gain, he was saying that you can see in me the character qualities of Jesus. And that should be the aspiration of all of us. Because godliness is directly related to the fruit of the Spirit in the life of believers. So he's going to mention now, and he's going to say, these are the essential qualities character qualities in Christian people that are necessary if we're going to have unity. So he says, be completely humble. The word humble uh, is primarily in Scripture addressed to two people in particular. In the Old Testament, it was Moses, who was referred to as the most humble man alive. Moses was referred to that because he didn't want to be a big shot. He gave every excuse he could. He said, I, 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 I stutter. I, stutter. I, I have tr- 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 trouble leading, talking to people. God said, but you got a brother who's a windbag. Use him. Aaron was his spokesman. And, but he, didn't, he wasn't seeking positions of power and authority. He avoided it if he could. And so God knew that that's the kind of guy that will listen to him. And he did that effectively. Jesus comes along as the perfect example who said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. That attitude of, being, of not wanting the spotlight. And you'd be amazed at the number of preachers who are preachers because they like the spotlight. And that's a dangerous thing for the congregation. You want someone speaking and teaching whose overriding desire is that people know the will of God and that work hard at making it clear and available for people. So he says, be completely humble and then gentle. And this gets to be a a sticky wicket for me because I started young and young men are always a little more arrogant than they ought to be. And, and so, you know, when you're slapped upside the head, you want to slap back harder. And that's, that's naturally, that's the way we are. You hit me, I bet I can hit you harder. And so that, that thing is there. The Apostle Paul, it's interesting. I found this interesting in Second uh, Timothy, I believe it's 2.25. He says, if you're a leader of the church and somebody opposes you, correct them, but do it gently. And it's the same thing that we'll read here in a little bit as we in another chapter or two, when, uh, in the fifth chapter in particular, because here in Ephesians, he's going to say, Daddies, be gentle in disciplining your children to keep them from hating you. And men do have a natural, a natural, not a spiritual, but a natural tendency to be unnecessarily harsh in punishment. And some of that we have to blame on the women. 
We're always looking for an excuse anyway. Because mother will say, wait till your daddy gets home. Just wait till he gets home. He'll beat you with a stick. And so, you know, that that whole business kind of gets out of hand at times. My mother never did say that because dad made it clear he wasn't going to beat anybody with a stick. And he didn't need to. The worst I ever heard him do, he gave me one whip, and it was monumental. I don't have time to talk about that. And it was painful. It was the short end of a broken tobacco stick, and it was memorable, as you can tell. He then says, I want you to be a humble person, not looking for a spotlight. I want you to treat people with gentleness. The opposite of gentleness in the Scripture is a is a it, people who create terror, and that's a, and, and who are violent really, and so it's an interesting uh, study when you look at the word. The next one is something no one is born with. It has to come through training in the Holy Spirit. He says, "Be patient. Be patient." As, as a young person, I struggled a lot with that. However, when you get my age, you can ask Gary sitting there with his grandkids. I saw him with him. He will allow those two little rug rats to do things. He'd whop his own kids, his kids, kids. You know, that's the way grandparents are. We learn to be patient because we find out that the other thing doesn't work very well anyway. It's more a release of frustration for the parents than it is for the benefit of the child, even though we always say, this is for your good. <laughs> yeah. And my kids said, well, it wasn't so good you know, when they rubbed their butt. And then he concludes by saying, and then you make a commitment to, uh, to love one another. And I thought Matthew did a good job last week of explaining what love is, the agape in the New Testament. It means that you consciously make an effort to do, see that the other person has something good happen to them. That's the reason you can love people you don't like. You can still wish them well or do what's necessary to help them if they're in need, even though their personality may be one that you just can't hardly stand. And uh, so he, he says, if you're going to have unity, you've got to have these spiritual qualities that overcome the natural qualities that we have, that we're born with because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And to get, to get beyond those things uh, where we want the spotlight and we're noisy and, uh, you know, want to have our way, and uh, it's, it becomes a real problem. And he says then, then you have to make a commitment to getting along with each other. I guarantee you that any marriage that's lasted very long is a direct result of the commitment to make it last not because it was always easier. There has to be that commitment. I would suspect that there was at least once in Alice Kay's 81 years when she would have been glad to have gotten rid of me. I'm certain it was just once. And I can guarantee her that I've had my thoughts about I sure would like to trade her in. But you don't do that because it's wrong. You make a commitment to make it work. 
And, there, and one of the ways that we evaluate our effectiveness as teachers of the Bible is what happens among the people that we teach. Folks, the pulpit has been amazingly ineffective. Amazingly ineffective because of the number of broken homes and so on that exist within the church itself. And I'm not talking about people who were all broken before they come in. I'm talking about people that break up after they get here. Which means we haven't done our job very well. And we think that counseling is going to take care. And sometimes it helps. But that's not really the problem. The problem is we're not mature in Christ. And I've always, and I've showed you this several times because I think it's a good way of demonstrating what we're talking about. If you can view yourself in the strongest of all of the uh, geometric figures is a triangle. And if you can see the husband here and the wife here and God here, automatically, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to each other until you become one. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. But you have to make a commitment you can't let circumstances dictate the will of God. And so if you're, in, you're looking, for, if you see, and, and men especially when they get in their 40s and hair starts falling out and the hair grows in your ears and your nose faster than it does on your head. And here comes some 30-year-old with a classy chassis and you start giving one-eyed look. That's called stupid. It's easy to spell. It's called stupid. And any woman that's willing to go along with that is assuming that because you're old enough to have made a few bucks and your kids are gone, that she's hit the jackpot. Be careful. Be careful. There are not many jackpots out there. So he's saying, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then, then he goes to, he does something interesting here. He then shows us God's point of view of why there should just be one church. And not all this division and competition and so on. He said, now this is God's point of view. Look at it. He said, there's only one body from God's point of view. That's the bride of Christ he'll refer to in the fifth chapter. There's only one body. And, there, and, we're, and he says, and when you're, he goes on to say, just as you're called in one hope when you recall, that's calling of being in Christ. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and see, we've messed that up too. Later on, a uh, hundred years or so after the church started, there was some old boy that had gotten himself into a position of leadership and he'd never been baptized and he was dying and so they poured water on him and they said, well, that, let's accept that as baptism. When the word baptism can only mean to dip, plunge, or to immerse. That's its only meaning. And, and, and we didn't translate it because it was a sticky wicket for the translators. The word, it, we transliterated it, which means that we took the Greek beta and 
and, and use the English B, the Greek alpha and use the English A, the Greek pi, you had that in math, and they used the P. The yoda became the I, the sigma became the S, the mu became the M, and so we called it, we called it baptism. And we didn't, and it, and it only can mean dip, plunge, and there's only one from God's point of view. Even though the church comes out and says, well, the Bible's not the final authority, it's the church, and we're saying that, uh, that to sprinkle, to pour, or to immerse is all good. It's a problem if you're going to have unity. There's one God and the Father of all. So he now puts it in the form of a family. God is the head of the, of the body who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, this verse 7, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, he's going to talk about God, what God gives. The word grace means what? You get what you don't deserve. A, go, a good gift. It's a gift that is given to you that you have not earned. That's what grace means. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve as a result of sin. It's two sides of the same coin. But he's saying, and he's going to tell you what those grace gifts are in just a minute. But before he does that, he talks about why Christ is the king, and shows how Christ is the king, and he uses an illustration that you all would not be familiar with, but was common then. There was, if a, if a Roman soldier were to take a, his uh, soldiers up north, and say make a raid into German territory, into the Germanic tribes, whatever he conquered, the slaves that he would take, the, 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 the people that he's captured, the gold, the silver, whatever loot he could get, he would come back and they would form a great big long line and he would be riding on a chariot. The, the, the general would be riding on a chariot with white horses pulling it. And behind him would become all that he'd captured that he's then going to present to the king. To the emperor. That's called the triumphant. That's the term that was used for that process. And so he's saying, that's what Jesus did. Don't you remember? The God who is father of all. He's the father of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus, he said, what, uh, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, or that train means like a, a dress behind a girl, it's called a train, by all that followed him, and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly region? So when Jesus died on the cross, he looked at this old thief that was deserving all that he got. And, and the guy confessed, you know, we, we deserve to go to hell on a skateboard. And Jesus, and, and asked for forgiveness. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So paradise is a part of Hades, the unseen abode of the dead, where the righteous Old Testament saints went. Jesus descended into paradise and then three days later took paradise out of that, out of Hades, and took them into heaven and presented them to his father. His father is the king, right? 
And he's the general who came and accomplished what God sent him to do. And those who were in captivity, imprisoned in paradise, he set them free and took them to the Father. He uses this illustration because the people then fully understood it. We don't see any of that anymore. So he goes on to say, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now then, he's going to talk about the gifts that God gave these, back in verse 8 where he said, and he gave gifts. He's going to tell you what these gifts that he gave the church in order that the church could be unified and be one. Here's what he said. It was he who gave some to be apostles. The word apostles is another Greek word, apo meaning from, stelo meaning to send. These were the, that Christ sent from. And there were more than the twelve. The twelve you're familiar with, but there were more than that in the scripture. There was, let's see, I can think of Savannah. There was, anyway, I know there were at least three or four more that I, that I remember seeing. Some to be prophets. These, these were guys... And I can't say, but the word profetuo means to speak forth. We have a tendency to think that a prophet is a guy who, who, who's a fortune teller about the future. He really isn't. He's one who speaks forth the will of God. And these were important to the early church because they didn't have a New Testament. And God would give them messages that would go to the churches. But there was, there was in about 125 A.D., there was a booklet called the Didache that was written that had rigid guidelines for a prophet. He could only stay at a church for, if he stayed more than two days, he was considered a false prophet. If he took money, he was a false prophet. There's a, in the Didache, they, the, the church put this little handbook out so that people wouldn't be taken in by smooth-talking con artists because they were there from the beginning. Some to be evangelists. These are itinerant types. Billy Graham probably is the one that everybody knows the best who is an evangelist. He didn't, he didn't pastor a local church. He, he was in the business of winning souls. And some to be pastor-teachers. Now, uh, in your text, it may say pastor and teacher. But in the Greek text, it doesn't have an and. It just says pastor-teacher. He is the person that God has given the local church. He's to be apt to teach. He's to be able to convince gainsayers or people who like to argue. He, he's to be gentle. He's to be all of these things, you know. Uh, he's to be, uh, to have those character qualities, the, the patience and so on and so forth. To bring the church together, to bring people, Gentiles with Jews, to people with all kinds of differences, help them to understand. But in Christ, we're one. And so he said, God gave these gifts in the form of men. Now, apostles don't exist anymore. I don't care what they say. Because when we find that when they were replacing Judas, they, they, the church said that you, there are at least two things that an apostle has to be. He has to have seen Jesus and he has to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. 
And if he hasn't done those, he cannot qualify as an apostello, one sent from Christ. Now, he goes on and said, here's the work, here's, here's the outcome of what these apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are supposed to produce in a thing called the church. He says, here's, here's their job description. He says, they're to prepare God's people for works of service, number one, so that the body of Christ may be built up. So really, we're, I mean, looking over, we're to be bodybuilders. Don't laugh. Jeez. Patrick keeps telling me, he goes to some place down here with some of our guys as a body, and you can tell, I mean, he's, poor guy, he, he's too big for his britches. His legs have gotten so big, it's wonder he hadn't busted out his rear end in some of his pants, and he's got these big old things up here, I don't know, what Matthew calls them, guns or something like that. Anyway, because he weighed 150 pounds soaking wet when he got here. He now weighs 180-some, and it ain't flab. And he eats well. Well, anyway, he goes to this place. Now, listen to it. He says, I want to take one of those places back to Uganda. I said, Patrick, the place he goes is called Bar Benders. Now, listen to me. Bar What's a bar? A bar is a place where people go to drink booze. And a bender is what they go on when they've drunk a lot of it. So why, should, why would you want to take one of those as a preacher back to Uganda? They've got enough problems without you doing that. He just laughs at me. But uh, I thought it was kind of clever, actually. And, uh, Anyway, we're to build up the body of Christ so that we're, you're so mature in Scripture and in spiritual things that you've overcome these natural desires that are there, that we're born with, that we overcome those to the extent that Christ can be seen in us. He says, and the, and the result of that is that the body if we, if, we do a, if we do what our job description says it is, the body of Christ will be unified, which means that the pulpit has been largely ineffective, like I said earlier, because the church is just divided everywhere. So he said it, it's the build until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So our job is to get new converts who are infants in the faith and help them by feeding them on the Word of God and teaching the Word of God to get them to mature in their faith to the place where that they don't buy every, every con job that comes along. Because in the religious world, you would be shocked at the number of uh, preachers probably all over the world, but it's really noticeable in Uganda. There are a few preachers there who are very, very wealthy. And so these guys see that it's a poor country, and they see that, and I want to be a preacher. Why? So I can be wealthy. Actually, that's existed since the church started. And when you read, I told you about Timothy, and when you read Timothy, 
carefully, you'll see that that has been a problem from the outset. And uh, uh, in the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, he says this, have nothing to do with, he's telling Timothy this, be a good teacher and have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Those are those character qualities. For physical training is of some value, Oops, took two pages, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So he's talking about how important that is, but he's saying, here's the danger. Now you go to the sixth chapter. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and of godly teaching, he's conceited and understands nothing. He's not humble, see? He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels and words that result in the envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt minds. Listen to this. Who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. See, that's been a problem from the outset. Greed. That's why, believe it or not, when the church started here, I made the commitment to my Lord. I'll never take a salary if I can keep from it. I'll make my living so that no one can say that I'm only there for money. And now I don't expect everybody to do that. I really don't. Because the Bible says that worthy that the preacher should be paid a living salary. Labor's worthy of his hire here in, as well. That's here in, in Timothy as well. But he goes on to say, if we do our job as described here, as pastor teachers, evangelists, prophets, and, and the, these, and by the way, there's no clergy system in the Bible. There's no reference. The only person in the Bible that says is worthy of the term reverend is God. Only one. So don't reverend me, even though I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because I've cashed checks that says reverence God on them. That's kind of funny if you think about it for a minute, you know. So, uh, but understand, these are the gifts that God has given us. Responsibil awesome responsibilities, really. And in some cases, it seems we haven't done too well at what we're supposed to do. If we equip you to the place where you're mature in your faith, here's what happens. Then you'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. He's saying you won't buy things like every, God wants everybody to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. God wants everybody to be faithful. But nowhere does he say, I want everybody. And yet we have preachers who themselves stink and rich who preach that stuff. That's deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will all grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined together by every supporting limit grows and builds itself up in love as each does his own work. So what he's saying is, I want the church to commit to being a living advertisement for God. 
I want your behavior, your attitude, the way you treat each other to be a living advertisement for God. And anything short of that is unacceptable. And, and in order to do that, some of us have to, have to bite our tongue and, 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 and uh, you know, it, it's just something that we have to really commit to and work at or it won't happen. The church, what we have to admit that the church universal is primarily made up of infants who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, every new religious fad that comes along. And the result is division and poor advertisement for God. And so he's expecting us to, to make the commitment to do whatever is necessary without compromising our faith, to, to work toward the unity of the body of Christ so that the lost world will look and see that's a good thing. We don't have that advertisement right now, do we? I've seen a few churches through the years that I considered mature and here's an interesting thing. Everybody likes to have good feelings. And that, that's, that's not bad, but if that's your primary goal, you can be easily misled. But when you walk into a building and you're made to feel like you're really welcome and we're glad to see you and, 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 and you're just immediately welcomed and, and made to feel as though you're a part of that family. In a world where families are falling apart is a magnificent tool for bringing people to Christ. If you see someone sitting over there and they're by themselves, get off of your duff and go over and sit down with them and get to know them and make them welcome. Anybody that comes on those doors and leaves without having felt welcomed and loved and encouraged to come back and spend more time with us is an indication of failure. When it comes to the, the success or failure of the pulpit, as I've discussed, I, would, I don't think we've totally failed but I would give us a good, healthy D minus because what is obvious with the division in the body of Christ is, is horrible. But as an individual congregation, we have, no, we have no excuse. And that door has to be open to everybody. The Apostle Paul was guilty of supporting murder Anybody, I don't care what they've done. We should be glad to see them and hope that they would see that they would seek and find Christ and become one with us in Christ. A healthy church looks that way. My goal, you know, and I hope I live to see the day when our congregation actually reaches that pinnacle of where people are actually excited about what's going to happen next week. There was a time when that really existed. 
It's an embarrassing, really, it was, it was enjoyable, but it was a little embarrassing when you have people coming to Christ before you've preached. But we had it to happen. I prefer that they, you know, just sit still till I preach so I look better. But, uh, but it didn't always happen that way. But it sure is exciting. But you know what? It largely depends upon each one of us bringing people with us, encouraging people to come visit with us, reaching out to people, your next-door neighbor, the people you work with, the persons at the bar vendors, etc., etc., etc. So I've pitched the ball to you, too. And if you'll help, we can actually get to the place and it can come quicker than you think when people will press into this building to see what God's going to do next. I hope I live to see it. Lord, I ask your blessing upon this gathering of people. On this Memorial Day weekend, we pray for their safety as people travel. We pray that you will watch over them and help us to be aware, Father, that we're to represent you well wherever we go and with whomever we are associated with. Dismiss us now, Father, with the presence of your Holy Spirit going with each one of us. Give us strength to be faithful. And help us all, Father, to commit to a a unity of the body of Christ so that you'll be honored, Father. We do love you, and we want to see you loved and respected. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.